Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 63, Viceroy Toledo. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. Thank you all for your questions. I've received quite a few on a variety of topics. I'm currently doing a bit more research to answer them to the best of my ability. And in our next episode, I will be answering them as well as making some announcements and giving some thanks to those who have helped this podcast over the years. Now, this episode may take a little longer than normal to get out to all of you. So I can't guarantee that it will be out in two weeks, but I will do my best. Now then, last episode we introduced Titu Kuzi Yupanqui. The Inca came to power in Vilcabamba, probably as Seri Tupac was crossing the Chuquichaca Bridge. After raiding the Spanish, he had come to terms with the fact that he needed to change tact and took a long-term view of things. A series of events and difficult negotiations led to the Treaty of Acobamba in 1568, which laid the groundwork for peace and for the establishment of a Vilcabamba vassal state under Inca rule, recognized by Spain. Viceroy Garcia de Castro was recalled, though, not long after the treaty had been signed by himself and the Inca. The man to replace Garcia would leave his mark on the Andes for generations. Enjoy. The Junta Magna met in Spain to discuss the correct type of administration for Peru. You see... Despite the wars between the conquistadors behind them, there was still quite a few things that Spain wanted to address. Indigenous conversion, encomiendas, native tribute, the role of native aristocracy, reduction of indigenous communities, labor for the mines, were all key topics the junta sought to address but they needed a man to implement their vision for Peru. So the Junta Magna selected Francisco Alvarez de Toledo and left the methods of implementing such changes to his discretion. More commonly referred to as Francisco de Toledo, or just Toledo, he is described as honest, but cold and unsympathetic commanding, and someone who demanded respect. Hemming refers to the viceroy as autocratic. We are told Toledo had a stellar military record and was high in the court of the late Charles V. Apparently, he was also at the Holy Roman Emperor's bedside when the emperor died. The appointment of Toledo was welcomed by many in Spain and elsewhere, In fact, Pope Pius V wrote to Toledo urging the new viceroy to give special attention to converting the indigenous population. 
Generally speaking, more modern scholars have called Toledo one of the greatest colonial administrators of all time. But it really depends on how one reads that phrase, great colonial administrator. Would Toledo benefit Spain greatly with his reforms in Peru? Absolutely, as we'll see. Would he ruin the lives of millions of people in the process? You bet. Great colonial administrator. Not necessarily the title that stands the test of time, is it? No doubt more infamous today than famous, back on November 30th, 1569, Toledo landed in Lima. At the top of his long to-do list were three things. The reduction of indigenous communities, establishing a labor system, and organization of the mines. Let's first start with reduction. In 1571, inspectors were sent out to various villages and hamlets throughout Peru. They reported that it was in the best interest of the indigenous population to resettle them into more centralized towns. It was argued that leaving the indigenous population alone would lead to their idleness, drunkenness, and adultery. Forcing people into organized towns with a square, church, and school, etc. would mean that they'd be easier to convert to Christianity. It was just as easy back then, as it is today, to read into the consequences of reduction. That is why native groups offered a 800,000 peso bribe to Toledo to not implement the program. Being a rigid old man, loyal to the crown, Toledo ignored the offer. Reduction was a massive undertaking, and it took 1.5 million people to complete it. How this was all achieved is still unclear to modern scholars. According to Hemming, as of 2003, the project had not been thoroughly studied. But we do have some notes thanks to some contemporaries. Juan Diego de Villa Berinzno, corregidor of Hirochiri, wrote they reduced 200 villages into 39 towns. He was assisted by the native Caraca, who had converted to Christianity, and they built hospitals within those towns. But they also destroyed some of the old towns as part of the reduction. Another account says that 226 settlements were reduced to just 22 towns, while yet another claims that 18 settlements were uprooted and placed into a single town. Indigenous people still had to farm their fields, and though those fields were further away, much further in some cases. And unlike the Inca, the Spanish didn't consider climate zones while resettling these groups. They looked at distance from one another. So at times, the climate became untenable for some as people moved from a lower elevation to a higher one, or a higher elevation to a lower one. Of course, reduction had disastrous effects on the indigenous economy. 
As we've discussed before, the economy in the Andes was a vertical one. Food grew in climate zones, and parts of a single AU were stationed in different zones so as to have different food and resources from each of these climate areas. It was how it was done for centuries, prior to the Inca and even during, excluding the cases where unruly groups were moved as meat maize. The forced resettlement was seen as a loss of freedom by the local populations. They were uprooted from their homes where their ancestors or huacas were. Fortunately, in some cases, and with the permission of the local governor or corregidor, some villages ended up being populated by their original inhabitants. Reduction also had a major impact on the spread of Christianity on the native population. Indigenous people could be more easily tracked and converted over time than before. Meanwhile, the destruction of Huacas ramped up as the church and Spanish both sought to stamp out the local belief system. Who knows how many were destroyed, but I have little doubt that it was in the hundreds if not thousands. Leaving the Huacas that were the landscape themselves, the lakes and mountains, as the most prominent reminder of indigenous religion. Toledo did have his moments at times. He would end up cracking down on encomenderos, or caracas, who were abusing or oppressing the native populations. Oftentimes, these two groups of people were not educating and converting the people who worked for them like they were supposed to be doing. But Toledo did this out of his duty to the crown instead of any love for the indigenous population, of course. He really didn't think that they had any true freedom, but viewed them as secondary citizens. It was from a paternalistic relationship that Spain had to protect the indigenous population, in Toledo's view. However Toledo saw the indigenous population, and no matter what protections he tried to implement, they were easily nullified by the actions he took when it came to the mines and forced labor. Of course, we are no stranger in this podcast to the Mita system, and the Spanish fully intended on reviving the Andean practice, but in a more harsh and intense way. Toledo issued conscripts for a few hundred miles away from some mines, requiring those men who were able to work in the mine for months on end, sometimes longer. Most of the miners' time was spent underground for up to over 12 hours a day, breaking up bits of ore with picks and hammers, breathing in toxic fumes. They'd climb ladders with sacks of ore weighing them down, with nothing but candles lighting the tunnels. Some mines, like the great silver mine at Potosi, employed a new technique using mercury amalgamation to extract the ore. This allowed more silver to be mined, but the process was poisonous. In fact, the conditions were so bad that officials and clergy who originally supported the forced labor in the mines retracted their support. And for all the gold that the Inca had, 
it would turn out to be the Tears of the Moon, which would increase Spanish wealth the most, with Andean silver being traded all over the world, reaching as far as China and the Philippines. In fact, in the coming decades, Potosi would grow to a population of 150,000. That may seem small to many of us today, but at the time, only London, Paris, and Seville had a population that was larger. By the end of the 16th century, Potosi would contain theaters, dance halls, Baroque churches, and of course, gambling houses. Most miners would take a loss on their craft, however. A miner would make 46 pesos, but it would cost him nearly a hundred in food and supplies, not to mention the cut that was paid to the Spanish crown. Eventually, some people fled away from the mining areas just to escape the Mita service and the hazards of the mines. But we must leave the mines in reduction there, for we are still very much interested in the impact Toledo had on the Inca. And it may come to no surprise to any of you, the Viceroy was not a fan. In February 1570, Toledo wrote to King Philip II that he was going to continue Castro's policy of negotiating with Tito Cusiupanqui. Despite his underlying hatred for the native population, Toledo could not justify an attack on Vilcabamba. Vinca had signed a treaty, and thus were the recognized ruler by the Spanish. Tito had brought on missionaries and also halted the raids. Plus, the dark jungles of Vilcabamba still intimidated many a Spaniard. So, with his ability to justify an attack on Vilcabamba nullified by the present circumstances, Toledo decided to play the long game and instead sought ways to try to delegitimize the Inca. Touring parts of Peru, the Viceroy sought statements from the local Sinchis depicting groups as independent prior to the Inca. He learned that the Inca expansion was fairly recent, or within the past couple generations, and wrote to the king that the Inca had no hereditary right to rule Peru. But the Viceroy further and tried to show how unchristian the Inca were by keeping so many wives and practicing human sacrifice. He then sought to support claims that the Inca were not the original inhabitants of the Cusco Valley, but came from elsewhere. Toledo selected his loyal captain Sarmiento de Gamboa to write down a narrative of Inca history. No surprise to us, Gamboa's work is incredibly prejudiced against the Inca, saying that they were established through tyranny and not through election or choice of the indigenous population, claiming that Manco Inca and Paulu were bastards along with the present ruler, Titu Kuzi Yupanqui. Of course, these are just a few examples of the horrible light Gamboa's work paints the Inca. And I don't know if I have time to go through all the ways in which Toledo and Gamboa's arguments were either wrong or hypocritical. 
the current and previous Inca rulers were not bastards. The Inca line of succession just didn't line up with the European idea of heirs. All the while, Spain had supported Manco, Paulu, and Titu at one point. The Inca weren't elected by the indigenous population? Oh, and the Spanish monarch was. Right. As for the Inca expanding recently and not originally being from the Cusco Valley, true, and likely true. Inca origin myths do start around Lake Titicaca, but can a representative from Spain, a nation who had only come into their colonial holdings within the past 90 years, really argue that the land the Inca expanded to was not the Incas to rule? Really? As you can tell, I don't buy a word of what Toledo was trying to sell, and neither did the Inca in Cusco. In fact, when the Viceroy believed he had enough evidence to discredit the Inca's claims as the rightful sovereigns of Peru, he called the leading Incas in Cusco to a meeting. There, Toledo presented his quote-unquote findings, and the Inca were unimpressed and unmoved. They knew their history through the oral accounts passed down by generations. They didn't need some colonial official trying to tell them their own history. With his delegitimizing campaign not going according to plan and negotiations with Vilcabamba going nowhere at present, Toledo began to get more bold and instead began looking for reasons to fight the Inca despite the current political situation. He once again wrote to the king and stated that he was not in awe of Vilcabamba as his predecessors had been, and believed that it could be taken by force. It was mid-1571, and the viceroy was taking the stance that a separate Inca state could not be tolerated. Meanwhile, in Vilcabamba, Titu Kuziupanki had been dealing with a problem of his own. Sometime in 1570, Marcos Garcia and Diego Ortiz, the two missionaries in Vilcabamba, led Christian converts in burning down the site of Yurak Rami. If it wasn't for Titu quickly coming to Vitkos to defuse the situation, the two Christians likely would have been killed by the angry mob that had formed. It was clear to the Sapa Inca that he was going to have a difficult time with the Christians and Inca religion coexisting. But Vilcabamba would be down one Christian missionary as Marcos Garcia was expelled from the area. We are told that this happened not long after Titu's account was written and that it was Garcia's constant disapproval of Titu having so many wives and that it was Garcia's constant disapproval of Titu having so many wives which upset the Inca. Yet, the events of Yurak Rami happened after Titu's account was taken, and so it may have very well been the tension between Garcia and the Inca priests which caused the Spaniard to be sent away. Then, in 1571, while fencing with his most trusted advisor, Martin Pando, near Vitkos, 
Titu Kuzi Yupanki fell ill. It didn't stop the Inca from drinking, which only made his condition worse, leading him to vomit and to have a swollen tongue the next day. Titu would die one day later after bleeding from the mouth and nose. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that the two outsiders, Martin Pando and Diego Ortiz, were immediately blamed for the Inca's death. Yes, despite being Titu's trusted advisor for many years now, Pando was still accused. Fortunately for him, his death was quick. Ortiz was not so lucky. First, the friar was beaten and ordered to bring the Inca back to life. After he prayed and nothing happened, the Inca present forced him to march for three days to face the judgment of Tupac Amaru. But when they got there, Tupac Amaru said that he did not wish to see the missionary. So after three days of marching and ill treatment, Ortiz was killed by a single blow to the back of the head with a mace. Titu Kuzi Yupanki was just over 40 years old when he passed. He lived in both Spanish Peru and Inca-controlled Vilcabamba during his life, though he could not recall much of his life as a child in Cusco. I have little doubt, though, he had several allies in the former capital amongst Inca who lived under Spanish rule. When Titu became the Sapa Inca in Vilcabamba, he resumed raiding the Spanish, something that had been suspended during Seri Tupac's time in the jungle. But then came the diplomatic dance he performed, giving into some demands made of him while refusing or ignoring others, always leading the Spanish on and leaving them wanting more. Likely his biggest accomplishment was the Treaty of Acobamba, the years of negotiating with the Spanish and at times promoting resistance against them had paid off. In the wake of Manco Inca's death, the Inca had been faltering. But now, a major diplomatic victory was at hand. Vilcabamba was seemingly secure as a vassal state to the Spanish Empire. Who knows what Tito Cusi Yupanqui would have been able to achieve if he had lived a longer life. Unfortunately, we can only speculate because Tito's death would prove fatal to the Inca cause in Vilcabamba. We will have to wait to explore that, though. As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, next time we will make some announcements, give thanks, and tackle your questions. Your questions.